0: welcome you are listening to the audio information network of colorado this recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print hello thank you for joining us for the friday april 21st 2023 reading of the human health program my name is emily crocker on today's program 12 Rules for Gut Health from The Guardian. And High Rates of Eczema Could Be Caused by the Air We Breathe from NBC News. Plus, Why Cilantro Tastes Like Soap and Other Weird Food Phenomena from Interesting Facts. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. Chew slowly, keep moving, and eat 30 plants a week. 12 Rules for Gut Health. What to eat, when, how to do it properly, and what to avoid. Experts lay out the food habits that will make a real difference to your health. By Emine Seiner from The Guardian. When we think about gut health, we tend to focus on food. Food is just one part of it, and I think people either engage in food blaming or think they need to eat all these expensive things, says nutritional therapist Eve Kalinic. But actually, there are other things, such as sleep, exercise, and how we're eating that are just as important, she says. The good news is they're easy, low-cost, and you can start right away. Here are 12 expert tips on how to get and maintain good gut health. Eat at least 30 different plants a week. A lot of diet advice, says Kirsten Jackson, known as the IBS dietitian, is focused on restriction, reducing calories and fat. For gut health, she says, Think about additions to your diet, especially plants. We should aim to eat at least 30 different plants a week. By plants, even coffee would count as one. A spice would count as another, she says. Grains, too, so don't just stick to wheat-based bread and pasta all week. Add others, such as barley, rice, and quinoa. Add herbs to dishes and eat nuts as snacks, and you'll soon get up to 30. It's not necessarily just fruit and veg, says Jackson. Choose powerful polyphenols. Phytochemicals is the sciency name, but they are essentially a type of plant chemical that we get in a lot of our plant-based foods that are thought to boost our health, that bit further, says Annie Coombs, dietitian and clinical director of the Gut Health Clinic. One of the most well-studied classes of phytochemicals are the polyphenols. Most of them, about 90%, skip through your small intestine to join our community of gut microbes in the large intestine, where we think the magic happens. Our microbes then help to transform them into chemicals that can be absorbed and have even been linked with reducing the risk of cancer, as well as better heart and mental health, Coombs says. Coombs recommends adding polyphenol-rich foods to your diet, such as coffee, green tea, berries, flax seeds hazelnuts, extra virgin olive oil, broccoli, red onion, and herbs and spices such as cinnamon, ginger, and mint, though there are many others including happily, red wine, and dark chocolate. Aim for 30 different plant sources a week and you'll probably get polyphenols without thinking about it. Get enough fiber. Ideally, at least 30 grams of fiber a day, says Jackson. That has been shown to reduce the risk of inflammatory conditions, cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. It's about looking at every meal and making sure that it is very much plant-based, she says. It doesn't have to be vegan, she says, but aim to have, in every meal, some sort of whole grain, so something like wholemeal bread, quinoa, or brown pasta, and then half of the plate to be vegetables, she says. Jackson suggests a couple of vegan meals a week— just to get as much fiber as possible, she says. Learn to love new plants. Get creative and adventurous. Coombs recommends using dips and seasonings, and being versatile with your cooking methods means a variety of flavors can be experienced as they all create different ones. To maximize nutrient retention, try poaching and boiling. Leaving the skin on can also add different texture and added fiber, she says. Making a batch of roasted vegetables on the weekend means you can add them into your weekly meals with ease, she says. Use as much of the plant as possible. It saves waste, money, adds more flavor and fiber. Some people swear by eating apples, stem, and core and all. But it's not for Coombs. She prefers extras such as cauliflower leaves and broccoli stems. Avoid gut-harming foods. Klinik says ultra-processed foods have a negative effect on the gut microbiome. Ultra-processing, in a nutshell, refers to foods that have a lot of added chemicals such as additives, preservatives, emulsifiers, and artificial sweeteners, basically ingredients that you wouldn't recognize as food. There are now studies showing that these foods affect both the diversity and composition of the gut microbiome, meaning that we see an increase in less friendly microbes and a decrease in those that are considered beneficial, she says. These types of foods also tend to contain little or no fiber. She cautions against fixating on one aspect and says it's hard to avoid UPFs completely, but where we can minimize consumption, the better for us and our gut microbiome, she says. Coombs adds that too much alcohol can cause inflammation in our gut and lead to its lining becoming more permeable or leaky. This means that we are more likely to experience gut symptoms after eating or develop intolerances. In terms of the impact on gut microbes, there's some evidence that chronic alcohol consumption can cause an imbalance and may be associated with increased gastrointestinal inflammation. The good news is this isn't permanent, and a reduction in alcohol and increased dietary diversity can restore the balance, she says. If you do choose to drink, it's about moderation, and some alcoholic drinks, such as red wine, have some gut microbiota benefits in small amounts, as it contains polyphenols and has been associated with greater microbial diversity, she says. Get probiotics from fermented foods. Fermented foods contain probiotics, the good bacteria. Sources are sauerkraut, kimchi, kefir, live yogurt, and some cheeses. Basic supermarket cheddar will have some probiotic benefits, but unpasteurized cheese is better. It hasn't been through the heat process, which kills bacteria, because you get more diversity and strains of bacteria in there. Fresh cheeses that are not fermented, like mozzarella, don't have probiotics in them, so it's the harder cheeses you're looking for. It's about cumulative benefits, says Kalinic, author of Happy Gut, Happy Mind, not just having sauerkraut once in a blue moon. A condiment-sized serving of something like sauerkraut or kimchi will do, and larger portions of yogurt or cheese, she says, and regular consumption is key. We don't know how much of these things actually stay in the gut. They do have a transitory effect, and that's why regular consumption is important. It has that positive benefit as those beneficial bacteria are moving through the gut, she says. Remember prebiotics. If probiotics contain the bacteria itself, prebiotics are the food that feeds our gut microbes. Think fertilizer, says Coombs. The main prebiotics include inulin, fructo oligosaccharides, and galacto oligosaccharides, which can be found in more than 35,000 plant species. They are linked to supporting our immune system. Bone and skin health, as well as improving blood sugar control and regulating appetite, she says. Supplements are not necessary, says Coombs. For the majority of people, we can take advantage of the naturally occurring prebiotics in food to help feed our gut microbiota, she says. Good sources include almonds and cashews to snack on. Add some prunes, dates or dried apricots to natural live yogurt, and try to include more grains and legumes in your day. So switch rice or pasta to frica, quinoa, buckwheat, or spelt, or add legumes into sauces, she says. Good vegetable sources include artichokes, asparagus, beetroot, chicory, fennel, garlic, and leeks, as well as legumes. Add a handful of chickpeas to sauces and curries, or try it in any of your favorite recipes. They can even be hidden in muffins, she says. Take the time to eat. Not many of us do this, says Jackson. We're always on the go, and this can mean that we don't chew foods fully, she says. We concentrate on the food we're putting in our gut, but digestion starts before we put the food in our mouth. When we look at food, we're starting to produce saliva. Then chewing it gives the food a bigger surface area, so when it does meet the digestive enzymes further down, it can get broken down a lot easier, she says. With bigger chunks, they've got more work to do. That might mean there's food going into parts of the gut undigested, and that can lead to fluid being brought in, excess gas being produced. How do you know you've chewed enough? Probably looking at consistency. If it's more like a paste, then you're ready to swallow, she says. Take a proper lunch break and eat slowly, adds Coombs. Research shows that if you take that break, you actually get more done in the afternoon and in less time, she says. Eat with other people if you can and want to. Eating, and many of the associated health benefits, is about community, culture, and experiences, as well as nutrients, she says. Practice Mindfulness we know that stress can be one of the major triggers in gut-related symptoms, says Kalinick. Include a daily mindful practice, which could be breathing exercises or meditation, because that helps to support the gut-brain connection. It's a bi-directional relationship. The gut talks to the brain. The brain talks to the gut, and it does it through this massive highway called the vagus nerve. So when you do the deep breathing that forms the basis of a lot of practices like yoga and tai chi, what you're doing is essentially soothing that vagus nerve. It helps move the body, she says, from the sympathetic fight-or-flight state to the parasympathetic, rest and digest, which is optimum for gut health. If we're chronically in fight or flight, that's going to impact on things like motility, so movement through the gut, which can change people's bowel movements, either making them more urgent or constipated. The production of stress hormones, such as cortisol, can directly impact the composition of the bugs in our gut as well, which then exacerbates any gut issues, she says. Five minutes every day is better than doing it once in a while and meditating for an hour. It doesn't need to be laborious. It's the cumulative benefits that add up over a long time, she says. Get moving. Move as much as you can throughout the day. Doing an hour of intense exercise but then sitting at a desk for the rest of the day isn't going to be great for digestion. Simple things like getting out during a lunch break and trying to walk for 20 minutes can really help, says Jackson. We know that movement outside especially will help the microbiome as well because you're coming into contact with more microbes, she says. Moving can help you feel less bloated. We don't know exactly why, but it's probably because when we're moving, we actually release small amounts of gas because bloating typically comes from gas, even maybe produced in normal digestion, but it's just sitting in the gut, so it makes us feel uncomfortable, she says. There's also the mental health benefits. There's probably an element where the brain is being impacted beneficially, and then that has another impact on the gut, she says. Fast overnight. That's enough food for now. We need adequate fasting periods between meals because we have microbes that help us digest and absorb our food, and then we have a different set of microbes that essentially do a kind of cleanup operation and manage inflammation. And that type of thing happens in a fasted state says Kalinic. Broadly speaking, we have a 12-hour overnight fast, so not eating from, say, 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., and also allowing periods between your meals, she says. Sleep also has a huge role to play in gut health, says Kalinic, so you should prioritize good sleep habits. Even one night of disrupted sleep, we know, has an impact on pretty much every system in the body, including the gut, and can even shift the composition of the microbiome, she says. Keep at it. A lot of us go from one extreme to the other, says Klinic, whereas good gut health is about consistency and patterns over time. Don't let an occasional week of excess or processed food derail you entirely. It's really not going to have that big an effect, she says. Just get back to the good gut practices and try to make them part of your life, she says. Up next, high rates of eczema could be caused by the air that we breathe, new research suggests. Rates of the itchy inflammatory skin condition have been on the rise since the 1970s. NIH researchers found specific chemicals prevalent in eczema hotspots. By Erica Edwards from NBC News. Chemicals that spew from vehicle exhaust and are used to make a variety of common products, from spandex to memory foam mattresses, could cause eczema in infancy, according to research from the National Institutes of Health, or NIH. We have solid data establishing that pollutants are very likely behind increasing cases of atopic dermatitis, said Dr. Ian Miles, chief of the Epithelial Research Unit in the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases Laboratory of Clinical Immunology and Microbiology. A disclosure, the author participated in a clinical trial run by Miles in 2018. Atopic dermatitis, more commonly known as eczema, is an incredibly itchy, inflammatory skin condition that affects 31.6 million Americans. It almost always begins in the first year of life and peaks in early childhood, according to the National Eczema Association. Allergens, such as pets, perfumes, dyes, and food, can cause the condition to flare up unexpectedly, even in adults. What causes eczema in the first place has been a mystery. Genetics play a role, but the incidence of eczema has risen two to three times in industrialized countries since the 1970s, leaving experts convinced something in the environment is behind the dramatic increase. Miles and his team turned to eczema hotspots around the country, places where clinics were treating higher numbers of eczema patients and studied toxins in the surrounding environment. They found similar chemicals called disocyanates and isocyanates to be the most prevalent. Disocyanates are used in the manufacturing process of many polyurethane products such as adhesives, flexible foams, carpeting, and fabrics designed to be stretchy or weather-resistant. Other than exposures for factory workers, the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, part of the CDC, says the chemicals are unlikely to be toxic in polyurethane products as long as those items have been cured or dried appropriately by the manufacturer. But it's exhaust fumes from modern vehicles that may have been driving eczema rates for the past 50 years. Catalytic converters work by eliminating many of the harmful chemicals found in gasoline, but in that process, they produce isocyanates as a byproduct. Catalytic converters became mandatory for all vehicles in the U.S. in 1975, coinciding with the beginning of the rise in eczema cases. The findings were published in the journal Science Advances. Dr. Jessica Hui, a pediatric allergist and immunologist at National Jewish Health in Denver, called the research exciting. I think these authors are spot on in recognizing that the incidence of allergic conditions is increasing concurrently with how different pollutants are increasing in our environment, Hui said. We're finally understanding more about why people are getting eczema, she said. The NIH team went beyond simply linking disocyanates and isocyanates to eczema hotspots. They took the chemicals into their lab and, using mice and bacterial cultures, found that they directly affect the skin's microbiome in two ways. They force healthy, protective bacteria to stop making oils that moisturize the skin. And while they're doing that, they are also activating a specific receptor on your skin, sending signals to the brain to induce itch and inflammation, Miles explained. Proving that the chemicals prompt atopic dermatitis reactions on the skin could help lead to new treatments. The research team then studied whether spraying a type of healthy bacteria called Roseomonas mucosa onto a person's skin would reduce eczema flares. The bacteria are found in the microbiomes of healthy people who do not have eczema. They found that most people had a modest, sustained improvement, and the effect was even more dramatic if those people lived in areas where disocyanate levels were higher. What can people prone to eczema outbreaks do? Avoiding car exhaust and even the wide variety of polyurethane-containing products is unreasonable for most people. It's a very interesting study, but we don't have evidence that there's something you could do to reduce exposures to disocyanates and isocyanates, said Dr. Peck Ong, a pediatric allergist and immunologist at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. So much of this is out of our control. I mean, you can't shut the highways down, Miles said. It is possible that some air filtration systems might be able to remove disocyanates and isocyanates. Research is needed, Miles said, to determine which ones might do so effectively to reduce eczema risks. Up next, why cilantro tastes like soap and other weird food phenomena revealed. From Interesting Facts. We savor food in many forms, from succulent meats and crumbly cheeses to creamy spreads and crispy crusts. Food nourishes, satisfies, and most importantly, gives us life. But not everything is gravy when it comes to culinary consumption, as some of what we eat and drink comes packed with surprises. A few foods fuel bizarre reactions from the moment we take a bite, while others combine with outside forces to turn our dining experiences sour. Here are several food-fueled oddities that can flummox the senses. Why does cilantro taste like soap? To be clear, many gourmands enjoy topping their fish, salads, and soups with a smattering of this herb. However, others feel like they're biting into a bar of soap. The reason appears to be a matter of genetics. One 2012 study showed that people equipped with certain olfactory receptor genes are more prone to detecting cilantro's aldehydes, compounds also commonly found in household cleaning agents and perfumes. While the percentage of the population that suffers from this fate tops out at about 20%, the resulting taste is apparently awful enough to spark passionate responses of the sort found on Facebook's I Hate Cilantro page, which has more than 26,000 likes. Why does orange juice taste terrible after I brush my teeth? Most of us have endured this unpleasant situation at least once. The culprit is a toothpaste ingredient called sodium lauryl sulfate, or SLS, which produces the foam that builds during vigorous brushing. Unfortunately, SLS also temporarily blocks the tongue's sweet receptors while simultaneously destroying the compounds in saliva that suppress our bitter receptors. The result is a double whammy for our sensitive taste buds, which leaves us to taste only the unsavory citric acid from what would otherwise be a refreshing drink. Why does spinach make my mouth and teeth feel strange? While experts ranging from celebrity chef Jamie Oliver to Popeye the Sailor Man have praised the nutritional benefits of spinach, few warn about the chalky feel that can come with munching on these leafy greens. The effect, known as spinach tooth, comes from the oxalic acid and calcium present in the vegetable. Ground together in our mouths, they produce easily detectable crystals of calcium oxalate. These crystals are potentially problematic to some people as they dissolve poorly in water and may cause the formation of kidney stones. The rest of us can simply boil, steam, or apply lemon juice to spinach to offset the unpleasant mouthfeel that accompanies our daily supplies of iron, fiber, and vitamin C. Why does asparagus make my urine smell bad? Not to be outdone by its fellow healthy side dish, asparagus comes with the unfortunate side effect of producing strong-smelling urine. This comes from the asparagustic acid present solely in this particular vegetable, which breaks down into sulfur byproducts upon digestion and surfaces in urine as soon as 15 minutes after eating. Not everyone is genetically capable of detecting this odor. One study published in 2016 found that roughly 60% of participants reported nothing funky in the bathroom after ingesting asparagus. Regardless, for the people who do experience the aroma, it's perfectly natural. Why do salty foods cause swelling? Even the most disciplined among us occasionally give in to the temptation to down a bag of salty snacks for which we may be punished with noticeably swollen fingers, toes, or lips. Officially known as edema, this puffiness stems from the uptick of sodium and our body's response of pumping more water into the bloodstream, which results in fluid bloated tissue. Edema can also be a sign of more serious health problems, but those who simply enjoy a few too many fries during a weekend lunch with friends can beat back the swelling by drinking lots of water, ingesting high-potassium foods, and sweating it out in the gym. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker.